Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So without further ado, Marianne, take it away. Thank you, Kat. And a big thank you to all of you guys for coming out to the final On Writing Well event of the semester. And of course, a very big thank you to Lane Gregory for making the trip from Florida to be here tonight. We are very appreciative. Yes. Thanks for no snow so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you all probably know, we'll be talking about three stories. I'll ask Lane questions. Welcome to Write Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the Times. Usually, I'm the one asking questions, but this week and next... Students from Ohio University are stepping in. Lane was recently at OU to participate in an annual lecture series called On Writing Well, which is sponsored by the E.W. Scripps School of Journalism. We thank the university for allowing us to use this audio in the podcast and specifically thank Gabriel Genovese, the student who did the recording. The student moderator you'll hear asking the initial questions is Mary Ann Dodson. Audience questions were sometimes muffled, so in those instances, we've gone straight to Lane's answers, where it's clear what the questions were. The topic for this podcast is a story that Lane wrote about Newton Murray, also known as Mr. Newton, who at 99 was still working for a local seafood company. So the first one about Mr. Newton at 99, a St. Petersburg man finds meaning in the working life. Um, This story is very much a personality profile, but... The man at the helm of it is not a public figure or not, not this big, big celebrity that we would know without your story. Um, so how did you first find Mr. Newton, and what tipped you off that he had this really interesting story? So I should say, like, when I was your age, I really wanted to write about important people and, like, elected officials and celebrities, and I thought journalism would be such a great way, you know, to get in on that. And I really shifted after the last... 10 years about to like, I really like telling stories about people in the shadows now. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, okay, I would sit down with Brad Pitt in a minute and do a personal <laughs> profile, but what's he going to tell me, right? Like, what are those famous people going to tell me that they haven't already told everybody? So I've, I've definitely shifted toward much more writing about people in the shadows. And um, I've been in the Tampa Bay area now for 18 years, which really helps because other people in the community know I like to write about people in the shadows, and they start feeding me story ideas. You know, the the guy who cuts my hair, the lady at the bank, my doctor's <laughs> office, you know. Like, people know who you are, and they start feeding you stories. So the story came with a phone call. You know, this this guy called me on the phone one morning, and he was like, I know you'd like to write about quirky stories, and we have this man. He's like, I've been doing payroll for the seafood company for the past 10, 15 years, and I knew this dude was, like, old as Methuselah, but I had no idea he's 99 years old. Mm-hmm. He's like, I just processed his paycheck, and I realized he's 99 years old, and I thought, oh, and there might be a story there. And so I went and met with, not with Mr. Newton, but with the guy who was the accountant and the lawyer for the seafood firm first, and kind of got his take on why he thought Mr. Newton would make a good story. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember going back to my editor and kind of being like, I don't know if there's a story here or not. There's an old dude with a broom and a shrimp factory. And my editor was like, 
holy cow, that's gold. You know, so <laughs> so he really, really understood even more than I did like uh-huh. the value of what that story could be. Um, and that's kind of how we got the the initial tip yeah. for him. And and Mr. Newton, you know, I don't know if you guys come across this too, but like, especially when you're writing about like not important people, I think sometimes a big part of my job is to explain to them why they are important. Mm-hmm. You know, he kept saying like, oh, I don't have a story, I'm just doing my job, you know, I'm just a hard-working man, lucky to be alive, you know, and he, he really had to be convinced that, that he had a worth, worthwhile story. Mm-hmm. You well, once you started working on it, did you ever think like you were going to back out, or did, once you like actually met with him, were you convinced that you were going to stick with it? Yeah, it, it kind of was one of those things I thought maybe I'd go do a daily story on him and spend a day. Mm-hmm. And then the more time I spent with him and the more I realized, like, how hard it was to do every single thing in his life from, like, just waking up in the morning to mm-hmm. making tea to, like, packing a piece of chicken from Walmart. <laughs> like, just the the earnestness with which he approached his life in, in this difficult situation was so inspiring. Even after a day, I was like... I'm hang out with you a little longer, you know. And I knew I wanted to come home with him, you know. I almost always want that anyway when, when I'm writing about somebody. I'd like, I want to come home with you. I want to sit on your porch. I want to go up in your bedroom. I want to eat in your kitchen, you know. And I, so I usually have that as a, a desire from the beginning. But the more Mr. Newton talked about his life and living mm-hmm. alone at 99, the more I was like, when, when can I come home? <laughs> you know. Yeah, definitely. So when you first refer to him, and in the first several graphs, you just use <laughs> pronouns to describe him. Um, you say he, his, I think you say the old man. Um, but it's not until like five or six so lines in that we see someone else refer to him as Mr. Newton, and then you refer to him by his full name. Um, what was your kind of thought proce- process in introducing him as a he rather than by his name? And did any of your first lead drafts have him by Mr. Newton? I'm really glad you asked that question because not a lot of people notice that. And if you read more than a few of my stories, you'll notice that I do that a lot because mm-hmm. I try to make the beginning like, as generically every man as possible. Mm-hmm. So rather than like I'm writing about a baby right now and rather than saying, you know, Lincoln DeLuna, I say the baby because mm-hmm. I feel like everybody can sort of picture a baby or think about a baby and it doesn't limit you to a specific human being. Mm-hmm. So I wanted Mr. Newton just to kind of be the like the quintessential old man. Yeah, definitely. Know? Yeah, and I noticed in the, your two follow-ups, including the obituary for him, you, in the first sentence, it's still a he. Yeah. I, I like the consistency <laughs> amongst the stories. Um, so most of the direct quotes that you include in the story really read like short snippets of dialogue. Some of them, I think, are just pieces of dialogue from your conversations um, with the characters, um, and they help make the story flow really well. Do you think that you more so choose quotes and write around them or write and then look at your transcription, look where those quotes go when they're just such short pieces? I think it's really changed for me. When I was your age writing for the college paper in my first few internships, I was all about the quotes. You know, I wrote down everything everybody said all the time and I felt like, oh, they should have the the stage to say this because it's their story. And as I've gotten older and, and realized like a lot of times we're writers we can say it better a lot of times than what people say in quotes. And so when you turn your story over to be primarily quotes, a lot of times you lose yourself or you lose control over the story in a bit. Mm -hmm. This story was easy to make that decision about because Mr. Newton, he couldn't hear very well. Like, I had to, like, shout in his ear to get him to hear me. He didn't speak English very well. He was uncomfortable with the language. And he was so humble that almost everything I asked him, he was just like, oh, aren't you a darling lady? 
question? Oh, that was a darling question. <laughs> no, and, and it wasn't like I was getting a whole bunch of depth from him. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like I could sit down and have this like long, deep conversation. So a lot of it was observed, mm-hmm. you know. A lot of it was um, talking to the people around him. Mm-hmm. When I finally got his stepdaughter, I was like, okay, I got mm-hmm. someone who can like speak to who this guy is. And then I had stuff to go back and talk to him about later, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it wasn't like one of those profiles where you're like, oh, my God, you're going to give me three hours of your your life and I'm going to like plumb your depths. It was like, oh, help. You know, like he, we would lose him. You know, there were mm-hmm. like days we would follow. I think we followed him for maybe four days total. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> a couple of days, you know, we'd be like, where's Mr. Newton? Like, I don't know where Mr. Newton is. And like one time he fell asleep on the toilet oh. and we couldn't find him. And we're oh. like, is he okay? You know, and other times he'd just like disappear in the bathroom and like fall asleep <laughs> on his broom. And so it was a lot of like tracking him down, you know. Yeah. And then the, the really good intimate stuff I got with him was when I finally went home which is almost always the case when you get Mm -hmm. to that person's home the space where they live you know Um, and I remember seeing the what became the ending this little list of things to do on the back of the door and I was like oh now I'm in the inner circle yeah now now I'm in Mr. Newton's world yeah definitely so was he pretty open and receptive to talking with you he he was so humble, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it took a lot to convince him, and then I had to kind of get the other guys at the seafood shop to be like, "Come on, Mister Newton, you're a good story. Talk to uh-huh. him, you know, like talking him into it. Um, just that, and not not that he didn't want to talk to me, but he mm-hmm. just didn't feel like he was worth all this attention. If right, that makes sense. And did you get his response after the story? Um, yeah, see, they, his church did a giant celebration uh-huh. for him after the story, so I got to go see part of that, which was super cool. That's very he sweet. was also camera shy, you know, oh, so the photographer yeah. had a lot of, like, don't pay attention to me. He'd be like, you're still here. Like, you know. mm-hmm. Was on, on the front end of, like, the first time you met with him, was he always willing to speak with you to some extent? Yeah, he just, I mean, and I run into this a lot. Like, if you're doing a story a one-time sit-down, I'm going to grab everything I want out of you and then be done. Mm -hmm. People get that. But when I'm like, I want to come back tomorrow and the (laughs) next day, and I want to ride with you on the bus, and then I want to be at home on Sunday morning when you're getting ready for church, and Mm -hmm. he's kind of like, oh, that's... That's a lot, you know. I, yeah. I never go in at the beginning and be like, I'm going to need to spend five days with you because then people are like, ah, <laughs> right. you know, so it's like a little bit at a time. Definitely. Um, so there are a lot of details in the story, and I liked in particular the recurring mention of the fried chicken throughout because it was kind of like in the beginning, middle, and end. Um, so I felt like it kind of always shifted or indicated a shift. Um, when you're with him and just in, with your subjects in general, um, and they do things like that. Do you register that at the time as something like, oh, I want to include that? Or is it something you more think about in the aftermath? I think both, maybe. I'm kind of always looking for those rituals, mm-hmm. you know, those recurring moments that, that might mean something and might not. Like, I knew <coughs> the first time I saw him go to work, and he, like, unwrapped his little watch, and it's <laughs> from Walmart, but he's going to, like, protect it in four layers of paper towels, and mm-hmm. he unwrapped his chicken, and it was just so... Uh, methodical and purposeful and then when he I went the next day and I realized he did the exact same thing every day mm-hmm. I think that's when I started thinking like oh I wrote it down the first time mm-hmm. you know I always write everything down because you don't know what you're going to need or not need sometimes when until you start mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. you know but then when I saw him going through that same routine again and again and I was like oh this is this is worth uh, uh, putting in because it illuminates who he is you yeah know? 
definitely. And do you ever have any details that you think kind of when you're there, you think that that'll matter, but then you end up just kind of dropping it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, was there anything with this story that you didn't include that you felt like maybe you would have? I had a lot more about his um, his kids, about mm-hmm. him as a dad, and the two, these two boys he'd taken in as like a godfather to them. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and and I wanted to write a lot more about him as, as a father, and I ended up realizing like that wasn't what it was about. Mm-hmm. You know, so I did a lot of reporting about his, his family that didn't make it into that story. Yeah, definitely. Because then it became, like he 2 days writing the first draft mm-hmm. and then we my editor worked with me and we redid it. Like I I mean I had a great editor. Um I, mm-hmm. I still do but a different one now. Um and I think I don't know how much you guys work with your editors or your professors on stuff but for me if I can spend 15 20 minutes with my professor or my editor talking about the story before I start to write it, mm-hmm. I can save 2 hours in the writing process mm-hmm. if not more, you know, cuz I I want to have that conversation like we had the conversation when I first met him mm-hmm. and my editor was like pumping me up with sunshine like this is going to be the best story, you know, <laughs> like he was so excited about it that that helped me get excited about it. Mm-hmm. And then I had another um conversation with him after we had um, done the, most of the reporting, mm-hmm. so before I started writing, and then we knew we were on the same page. Like, where's it going to start? Where's it going to end? Mm-hmm. And he always makes me pick like a one-word theme. You know, what what is this about? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helps a lot when I sit down to write because then anything that doesn't fit that theme, you can just leave right. <laughs> on the cutting room floor. You right. Know? Um, I feel like there are a lot of things in this story that are really, like, lead-worthy. Like, I feel like you could have gone a lot of directions in terms of opening the story. Did you always know that you wanted to open it the way that you did and with, with him waking up and with that quote? Or did how many kind of lead drafts did you have? Yeah, I typically do four or five different beginnings until I figure out where I want to start. Mm-hmm. But that day in the life is, like, always the most productive throwback. You mm-hmm. know, if you can't find a chronology for a story, like, wake up in the morning, go to bed in the evening, that's usually pretty good payoff, you know. But I didn't know what his morning looked like until I went over there one morning when he was waking up. And mm-hmm. then I was like, okay, this is this is going to be where it starts. I thought I might start with him showing up to Bama Seafood, uh-huh. you know, pulling out his broom or whatever. But when I was able to back it up and watch what it took even to get to that point, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, no, we yeah. So did you get there before there. he woke up? I asked him what time he got up, and uh-huh. he didn't want me to be there. Like, sometimes people let you spend the night, uh-huh. which is always a little bit weird, you know. But <laughs> but I, I just said, can I come right when you wake up? Mm-hmm. You know, he goes, well, I always set the alarm for, I think, 3.45. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I'll be there at 3.46, you know, or whatever <laughs> it was. Like, he left the door open for me. I do remember that. Oh, nice. Because he was like, Very sweet. I, I wanted him in his routine. I didn't want him waiting for me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Definitely. 
All right, we are now going to shift into audience questions. So reminder, keep the questions about the writing and about the stories themselves. Nothing personal, political. You can talk to her about that after if you want. <laughs> Was that a bet? I said, you're so beloved here, and everybody feels like you're such a part of this institution, and I've never met a 99-year-old man who still goes to work every day, and I just think you'd be an inspiration, you know? I, I, I always try to make a pitch to the people I'm writing about, like, what's in it for them? You know, why should I do this? I know why I want to tell the story, but what's in it for you? And it was trying to convince him that, like, maybe you'd inspire some other people who think their lives are hard or think, you know... That, that they can't get up in the morning to do something like that, and okay, darling, oh, that would be lovely. You know, he kind of he kind of went along with it. I should also say, like the three forty-five in the morning thing. Um, he, he, this is a hard part too. Like, I, I one of the things about my job I hate the most is that I want to be intimate in these people's lives, but I can't change them or influence them. You know, mm-hmm. and so he wanted me to drive him to work. And I don't care. He, he lived really near to me. I would more than happily given him the ride to work. And the first day we went to the seafood factory to go home with him, it was pouring, pouring, pouring rain, like Florida sun, summertime, like horrible deluge. And I was like, i got to drive this poor old man home. You know, I can't, I can't make him walk like six blocks to the bus stop and, and when I have my little car right here. So I screwed up my own reporting on that first day and drove him home. And I was like, I'll be back in the morning. I said, but tomorrow I want to ride the bus with you. You know, tomorrow I can't drive you. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I, I felt terrible. Like, it's hard to explain that to somebody, mm-hmm. you know. But when I saw, I mean, it was like a four-mile, not even a, a three-mile from his house to the seafood factory, and it took like almost two hours on the bus. I mean, that was incredibly ridiculous, but it also ended up illuminating a lot for people who don't realize how hard it is to take the bus, you know? And I think I put in the story how much she spent $35 a month on a bus pass, which equaled seven hours of sweeping or something. Well, the county bus people changed their policy after the story came out and made everybody over 55 ride the bus for free. So that was, like, an incredible, like, I wasn't trying to, like, change the world, but they read this thing in there and were like, dude, that sucks. That's unfair to these old people. Let's fix that, you know. So that was a bonus of riding the bus. Definitely. Um, what, was the, what was your observation process like? I mean, did you really just watch this guy, like, sweep a parking lot for eight hours for a full day, a couple days? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we did. And it was hot as bejesus. And he's, like, wearing a jumpsuit. It's 100 degrees out. And, I mean... He, this is how he sweeps sweat. <laughs> I mean, it was like the photographer was like, oh my God, we have to stay all eight hours. <laughs> like, so yeah, no, it was, it's a tedious observational process. But um, I, I, got, I, I have a hard time being the fly on the wall. Like I know some reporters who are really good at just like blending into a room and disappearing. And I'm always like, Lane, shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Just watch this is happening, you know. So there was there was a lot of that going on. I wanted to ask, what was the theme of the story? Oh, the theme was work. Like, identity through your work. 
like that doesn't sound very eloquent, but yeah, it was like <laughs> like the value of work, I guess, kind of like bend to. Like whenever you were observing this guy, like what were you looking for exactly? Like what was what was like something that he did when you were like it, like it clicked in your mind like oh I'm gonna write this down this is something interesting was it just like things out of the ordinary or was it the ordinary that you it was it was the ordinary and the elderly you know how hard is this is this for an old guy to do this but my kind of my aha moment when I was like okay I I love this man and the story was when he took me to his little broom closet like back in the like the boiler room you know and it was his little fiefdom I mean it was a I don't know, it was a room as big as from there to the trash can, but he had his little stool and his little refrigerator, and he wrapped up his watch and his chicken and his white bread, and it was like he, he had his little fiefdom in the back of this boiler room in the back of the seafood factory, you know, and I felt like I'd been sort of led into this inner sanctum in a weird way where I kind of got what it was that he was doing. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, because I, I work, well, this photographer I did this story with is my favorite photographer in the world, and she and I have worked on, like, all my favorite stories together, and I, so, we're not supposed to pick our photographers, you know, we're <laughs> supposed to, like, put an assignment in and wait till they, and I'm always like, Melissa, I've got this story, you know, so I would, like, secretly pick her, and she came to everything I came, I did not do anything in this story that Melissa wasn't there with me for the entire time, and, you know, she, she has a lot easier time of, um, slowing down and focusing in than I do like I learned a lot about b-roll from her and sort of like zooming in on these really tight details like I hadn't thought to chronicle what was in the pile of stuff that he swept in the parking lot until Melissa's like taking a picture of you know the M&M wrapper and the little Starbucks cart you know I was like oh I should write down what that is you know so so kind of watching her work that way has, has really helped me see things like in a more macro micro a microcosm of, of what's out there I, I tend to look at like the the big picture and, and Melissa was really great at focusing on on, on the little things um, plus it helped to have someone go like is he alive in there like <laughs> can you knock on the bathroom door no you knock on the bathroom door like just to have a partner you know to go through that with is super helpful mm -hmm. any other questions no Okay, so we're going to move on to The Long Fall of Phoebe Johnchuk. Can I say one thing really quick? Yes. Just because you guys are all like college-age students and you're all my, my kids are the same age as you guys, and I'll feel bad if I don't say this. I spent 15 years in a bureau writing three or four stories a day before I ever got to do a story like this. So don't feel like you have to start out getting to do big feature stories that you're in love with. I mean, you really, really, really have to pay your dues, and you have to not be pissed off if you got to go to a zoning board meeting or you got to go, you know, cover the aftermath of some budget hearing or something like that because you do those things. So you guys are doing those things, right? You do those things and you're like, why am I doing this? Because <laughs> once you learn how to do that and you can prove to your editors you can do that, then you can go, oh, can I have just three or four days to do this story? I was, my first 10 years of my job, I wrote three stories a day for like little crappy papers. And it's, it's so it's definitely, I just want to say that as like a way to say, it, it's important to do mm -hmm. those things, you know, and I don't think I could have written Mr. Newton if I hadn't done all those. So, sorry, that was my mom pitch. <laughs> Very inspiring. <laughs> okay.
If you have a question for Lane about any of her stories or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.